Welcome to Dietitians Uncorked, a podcast hosted by Kat and Kelly, two registered dietitians who co-founded Nutriving, a virtual nutrition practice. We talk all things food, nutrition, life, and of course, wine. This is a judgment-free zone where all foods fit and all bodies are welcome. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everyone. We are so excited you're here. We have seriously such a good episode. Um, Kat, I'm sure I can speak for the both of us that when we were researching, kind of like doing our due diligence for the episode, we were fired up. Am I right? (laughs) A hundred percent. Like, I'm like sitting at the edge of my seat. Like, I just, I just want to tell you about it. Yeah, we were like messaging each other as we are collecting information for this episode. Like, it's just, it's going to be good. So buckle your seatbelts. We are diving into something you've likely come across before in different headlines, but we're going to talk about is sugar as addictive as cocaine? Yep. Going to get into it. Um, Before we do that, Kat, what uh, typically, you know, we have a beverage with us. Um, So what do you have today? Um, It's been a long week, you guys. And uh, we debated on having wine as we normally do, but I needed a pick-me-up. I definitely needed something not to wind me further down, especially because I want to be so on to to this this episode, I want to be sharp. I want to be awake and uh, I needed some coffee. So (laughs) instead of wine, I'm drinking coffee. I support that. Um, I actually have hot chocolate that I made. Look at that. I know it's, um, from the recipe from our website, the oat milk hot chocolate, which is a a very, yeah, super good recipe. So good. I made it just with regular milk today, um, but it's pretty cold out. So it sounded Nice, and as Kat said, we wanted to be really super sharp for this episode. Um, so let's let's get into it. Let's do it. So you likely have seen, I feel like these headlines have circulated around for a while, right? You see news stories or just articles online that say like, is sugar as addictive as cocaine? Like, can you get addicted to sugar? Um, all different variations of that headline. So we want to start this episode by really describing like, why is this a thing? Like, why are mm-hmm. news outlets, why is this even being talked about? Um, mm-hmm. And really, so Kat and I did a lot of research, as we mentioned, And a lot of this goes back to, there was a study in 2007 done by uh, French researchers that involved rats, um, a small number of rats, which we'll get into the issues of that. But these rats, essentially, they gave them options between a, like having a sugar solution. So first they did what's called a saccharin solution. So saccharin is a type of artificial sweetener. It's actually found in sweet and low. So if you've ever had sweet and low before, if you look on the ingredient list, you're going to see saccharin. So it's an artificial sweetener that's about three to 400 times sweeter than actual sugar. So they mix this with water. They gave rats the choice. Do you want that or do you want cocaine? (laughs) I feel so weird describing this. Do you want sugar (laughs) or do you want cocaine? Cocaine. Um, Yeah, you pick. Whichever you prefer. Yeah. Um, Also a point here to make, I know, um, they picked saccharin because it was a 
ca- it was, it's not a calorie, a caloric um, net gain per se. They didn't pick table sugar initially because they didn't want that to kind of mess up the experiment for the rats to pick something that was like satisfying calorically. They picked something that was low calorie but sweet in order to kind of have a true test whether they would prefer one or the other. Yeah. Exactly. So saccharin being an artificial sweetener, it's not providing calories. It doesn't provide energy to our bodies or to the bodies of rats in this case, but it does provide that, that sweet taste. So essentially what they found is that rats, when they were given this choice, 94% of the rats preferred the saccharin solution. So the, the artificial sweetener solution. Then They did this experiment with sucrose, which is table sugar, like regular Mm -hmm. sugar, and they found that the rats still preferred the sucrose solution. So, and this finding was maintained even when they were like slowly increasing the doses of cocaine that the rats were getting. So what they essentially concluded is that rats, you know, when given the choice, prefer sugar, whether it's saccharin or sucrose solution. So the authors concluded that the fact that this highly sweetened stimuli in the form of saccharin or in the form of sucrose took precedence for the rats over cocaine. So because of this, they considered the saccharin solution to be what they called a supernormal stimuli that they said is more effective than naturally occurring stimuli in controlling behavior. So the whole reason they're moving to that explanation, they kind of move into like how sugar, you know, thousands of years ago when humans were starting to come about that sweet food was not readily available, right? You're not seeing Snickers grow on trees or anything like that. Even finding fruit, you know, was very different than it is now. So they're kind of saying now sugar is widely available and yet we have the brain mechanism of, you know, humans that evolved thousands of years ago. So they, there's a lot of conclusions that have been drawn from this study because, you know, you look at the numbers, oh my gosh, 94% of the rats preferred this solution over cocaine. And the fact that rats and humans, you know, have some brain chemistry in common. So a lot of thing, a lot of conclusions were taken from this study and really used to direct future research, but also just kind of direct like arguments, kind of people putting together arguments that they felt like were logical, but not necessarily supported by research. A hundred percent. It's this study was what fueled the avalanche that happened in the media after this study came about. I think researchers were not expecting for the rats to respond this way. And so it was like, oh my God, we are all addicted to sugar. Now, addiction is a very strong word. And uh, in diving into this, we, God, I could talk about this all day, but there's a lot to be said about that. But if, if I can direct your attention to the study itself, the one that sort of started this whole thing, there have been a lot of criticisms to this study. One, it's a study that involved rats. We are not rats. And um, I don't see anybody snorting table sugar. um, Never seen that. You know, (laughs) just like on a regular basis, just like as a quick break, just a pick-me-up. 
Um, but one criticism that we can have here is even, even when they're using rats, which are not humans, even if we're using rats, the number of rats they used is very small. In the particular experiment that involved actual sugar, table sugar, and cocaine, there were only 10 rats. That's tiny portion of, uh, if we can call them subjects, right? Um, when we do a human study and there are only 10 people involved in that study, we would say the sample size of the study is far too small to extrapolate such a generalized conclusion. And that would be widely accepted. It would be like, all right, let's repeat this and let's scale it up to 100, to 200, to 1,000 people because that's just how we are able to understand well-conducted research experiments. So one, they only used 10 rats in the uh, experiment that involved cocaine and sugar. Another aspect here is they only used male rats which I'm like, can we females not get a break? Can we not get included into <laughs> research even the rats. experiments? Even in the rats, um, which we understand why, but uh, and likely it's because female rats are a little bit more complex. Maybe they're just in general with hormones. I think that that's the reason why, but they only include male rats, which is something to know. And something else, too, is despite the experiment designed to assess for preference for sort of this um, making a true choice between the saccharin versus the uh, cocaine, there's still a lot of criticism that these rats were not actually making these choices per se there might have been a taste preference here involved again our subjects are rats so we can't ask them do you like the solution because it's sweet or because it's addictive you know we can't ask that question of rats and I think it's a good it's a good and fair point to bring that up because this is not a study that was done in such a marvelous way for us to jump to headlines and for everyone to jump on the bandwagon of sugar is addictive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this this happened in, the study was published in 2007, so a decent number of years ago. But I think if, if you read research studies often with human studies, you know, if it's with a certain um, gender population or a certain age range, you know, you will see hey, this study was conducted with X number of subjects from the ages of 20 to 40, for example. So we cannot generalize these results to people over 40. And yet this this study was so like sensationalized. I mean, the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, cocaine is involved, I feel like uh, they just skipped a step, right? And people were just <laughs> enamored with the results. And, and that is a, a really dangerous error to make because, I mean, yes, there are some commonalities in terms of the biology, but of course, like rats are entirely different than humans. And, you know, animal studies, animal research is super important. There are obviously things that, that you can study with rats that you would never be able to study with humans. Like it is not ethical to put humans in a research design like this. You cannot, yes. you know, give humans a saccharin solution and cocaine, 
that would never pass an, an IRB board. So <laughs> animal research plays a super important role in, you know, discovering things that we are not able to discover for ethical reasons in human populations. And for that reason, it's really great to inspire future research and, you know, try to come close, try to find a design in humans that's a little bit more ethical. But that is very different than generalizing the results of a study with rats to humans, which which we really should not be doing. When we're talking commonalities, um, we are talking about the, the biological response to things like saccharin or sucrose or uh, cocaine. And so really what we're referring to is a reward pathway. So there are parts of the brain that are similar in rats and humans, and there's an area called the VTA or ventral tegmental area of the brain that's responsible for releasing a hormone called dopamine. So you may have heard of dopamine before. Um, it's typically referred to as like, like if you're happy, like you kind of get a high off that hormone. It's something, you know, that you, f- you feel good when we have a dopamine release um, from some kind of pleasant event. It, why, why are you laughing? <laughs> because I just <laughs> I remember the moment that TED Talks sort of uh, fell out of the pedestal I had put them on because uh-huh. there was a man who I don't know if you ever saw this, but there's this guy who called himself the dopamine doctor. <laughs> no, I didn't see. <laughs> and he said that he knew exactly how to get dopamine activated in other people, and he just started randomly hugging people in the audience, and it was just, like, the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Anyway, <laughs> has nothing to do with this. <laughs> I think there's a overall misunderstanding of dopamine, which I'm glad you're getting into. Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> – that's funny. Um, it is released in, you know, this the situations that the study examined. So saccharin, sucrose, uh, cocaine – it's a reward pathway. So when something feels good, our brain, specifically the VTA area, releases dopamine and it goes through what's called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway. So there are a few reward pathways in the brain. This one is really the most common. And so it has signals that go to other parts of our brain. So the amygdala is responsible for a lot of like emotional states. So if you feel happy, like those things are going to be correlated. They're going to be packaged together in your brain. So we're associating a behavior with feeling good. And the dopamine also affects another area of our brain called the hippocampus, which is responsible for storing memories. So now we're pairing a behavior with the fact that it felt good. And then you're remembering that that occurred, which is going to propel, you know, our future behavior. So that is why, you know, rats in this case would go for the saccharin solution, the sucrose solution again, because they're being rewarded by, by that experience. So there are some commonalities and that's really when people are referring to this study, that's kind of the basis of it is because both of these events, cocaine and sugar, they do release dopamine. They both release dopamine. There's no arguing that fact, um, but that does not mean that sugar is as addictive as cocaine. So Kat's going to walk us through a few other studies. So we have talked about animal research. We're going to move a little bit into more recent human research studies that kind of argue back at this point. If you've ever got, come across this like notion that 
sugar is more addictive than cocaine. You probably have seen these MRI pictures side by side of like your brain on sugar, your brain on cocaine, and they look exactly the same. And it's exactly what Kelly is talking about. So let's bring it back to human studies because we are human. So we care about what this does to us. There was a 2016 uh, study that was published in the European Journal of Nutrition, and it's called The Food Sugar Addiction. I'm going to quote them here. Um, It says, we find little evidence to support sugar addiction in humans, and findings from animal literature suggest that the addiction-like behavior, such as binging, occur only in the context of intermittent access to sugar. I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, I'm going to keep quoting them. These behaviors likely arise from intermittent access to sweet-tasting or highly palatable foods, not the neurochemical effects of sugar. In a more recent study in 2021 called Sugar and Sweet Taste, Addictive or Rewarding, um, the researchers concluded that One, it was very hard to reproduce the MRI data that we are seeing uh, related to this addictive-like reflection of our brains. And then two, um, and I will quote them saying in the conclusion part of their study, it says, we believe neurobiologies of reward value and addiction to be distinct and disagree with the application of the addiction model of sweet food over consumption. They're making the distinction here that we have sort of jumped several steps ahead of the data and we're calling sugar addictive before we truly understand what is happening in our neurological system. Furthermore, there was a study by Dr. Ann Clara Bobadilla from the Medical University of South Carolina. And uh, I read the study, and uh, it's the coolest. This study was done in 2020, and she is using technology that we have not had access to 10 years ago, especially when the study of the rats came out. Um, And she was able to look that sugar and cocaine elicit responses from different groups of neurons. Then although these are, when consumed, similar areas of our brain are being light up, right, as they reflect on an MRI machine, we are using different neural ensembles, as she calls them, responding to sugar and to cocaine. Um, it's their different call responses. They're generally in the same area and some of these neural pathways are similar but they're different when we're talking about a true addictive substance versus sugar. Um, She was interviewed in a a journal or I think in a website for the Medical University of South Carolina and she says the fact that they're different networks is so encouraging because it means that you could specifically try to diminish the network that responds to cocaine without diminishing the network that responds to food which are very important for survival and if we think about the reason why maybe our brain responds in such a let's say positive or 
the, the reward system of wanting a substance lights up or is engaged with sugar consumption makes sense because we have a survival pathway in our system already programmed so that we don't die from starvation, so that our bodies understand we're being nourished and when there's something that likely is going to feel good in our body versus when something is likely not. Um, I think we have not been able to make that distinction up until more recently, but comparing... I think there's still headlines right now talking about the true sugar addiction um, compared to a illicit substance like cocaine or heroin. It's really misleading because we are talking as if they were the same thing when clearly they're not. Mm-hmm. And there's, for people, you know, who are not science people, right? Maybe you have an entirely different job. You don't have a lot of background in science, which is a ton of people, understandably. When you look at these articles and like the sensationalism, like, of course, they're writing a title like this because they want people to read it and pay attention to it. But that (laughs) does such, it's, it's fucked up. Like that is such a disservice to the public because the way that articles are written it's not getting at this nuance, you know, like what you and I are talking about this, that, that 2020 study about the neural ensembles is, is really brand new information, you know, in, in terms of the research world. And what we're seeing is there's just because two substances are both activating the reward system in our brain does not mean that they're the same. Like there's a lot of nuance that making that conclusion means you're really, you're ignoring like a lot of the information and a lot of the nuance and, but you can make an argument like that. That's the problem. Like the way that these, you know, Kat and I read so much information, so many research studies in preparation for this episode. And if like, sometimes I'll try to blind myself in a way and read it and try to think like, okay, if I didn't know X, Y, or Z, like how would I take this article? And I totally get it. Like, there are very convincing writers. Like, they're writing a story, but they're ignoring a lot of the the research. Yeah, and even if they weren't ignoring the research, um, if you just... And I did this exercise. I went to YouTube where there are a lot of people that get their scientific information from YouTube. Uh, I know several friends who just follow different channels that sort of do this explained from a biological standpoint or whatever of several topics. And there's a lot on nutrition on there. And I just searched, you know, is sugar addictive as cocaine? And oh my goodness, it was endless. It was endless. And these people took the same information you and I just talked about of the rats and they it was it was so interesting how they would sometimes mention that they were rats but sometimes they wouldn't mm-hmm. and then be like and the, the experiment led blah or sometimes they would talk about rats and then slowly morph into mm-hmm. how humans are doing this and 
I, I understand that this is interesting research. I understand that at the time that was sort of alarming, but it's irresponsible to present it in such a way with pictures and beautiful soundtracks and whatever, because had I not just read through all of this, I would have been probably just as convinced. And I think I was at at a point in my life. Mm-hmm. I was 100% convinced we were all just massively addicted to sugar and that our brains worked the same when they were on cocaine or when they were given or consumed sugar. Um, I, I just want to say like on the um, study that I mentioned of the neural ensembles that Dr. Bovadia talks about, she using the, her model, the, the new technology, um, they found around 70% distinction between the cells constituting the cocaine compared to the sucrose-seeking ensemble. Like 70% mm-hmm. distinction of neurons involved in cocaine addiction uh, response to sugar. And I mean, I don't, I feel like that's something that should make a headline and be like, Hey, but it's not as sexy to say, listen guys, sugar's not as addictive. And it actually turns out that they're not the same, <laughs> but like we should be careful with overconsumption of sugar. You know, that's not as cool as saying like, we're all addicted and we should just take a massive break from sugar. Cause otherwise you're just going to be just as addicted Mm -hmm. to like compared to other illicit substances. I think that's a really good segue. We wanted to share a few other things, you know, bullshit that we found on the internet that just tickled (laughs) our fancy and we want to share with you. Um, (laughs) I did speaking to your point before, before I share these very entertaining examples, I saw even several research articles that were, the subjects were rats, and then their conclusion, their discussion, the language shifts to the word individuals, which I don't know about you, but when I hear the word individual, I think about a human. Like, I don't think about a rat. So that is super misleading. Along, I know. (laughs) Along with many fun little tidbits we're going to share with you from the internet. So one of these is from a 2014 opinion piece in the New York Times. It's called Sugar Season. It's everywhere and addictive. These people with their headlines. Like oh, we, we need, you and I need to take lessons, but like for, for the good, right? And <laughs> how to write yeah. headlines and titles yeah. that attract people. But, you know, that headline simply as it is, you know, you can tell they're like trying to lure people in. Super um, catchy. Yeah, exactly. So this is written by two, by a research scientist as well as an assistant professor at a college of medicine. So again, you look at their headline and you're like, oh, legit, very legit people, right? Writing this Obviously. article in the New York Times has got to be great. Everything they're saying is true. But one of the things that they mentioned just fucking blew my mind. They said that the, the fact that sugar and cocaine, they said they are similar because the extraction and refinement process of both substances produces pure white crystals. And so they used this as part of their argument to say that both sugar and cocaine are addictive. <laughs> right? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, are we going to say the same about snow? 
What about salt? <laughs> Should we just <laughs> put that in there? Snow. Just as addictive as cocaine. White crystals. Anything white crystals. That Are just you like, kidding me? Like when you look at it, you're like, okay, Christ. true, I guess. But that, how do you leap then so that they're both addictive? Like that is entirely misleading. And if someone's reading this like pretty quickly, you know, and maybe they're not... Like, they're not preparing for a podcast episode, right? Like, you and sure, I are. They're not sure. kind of thinking at it, like, at that in-depth level. So you look at the source. You look at the authors. You look at the argument that, you know, on the outside it has validity. That's why we're in this situation, right? It's shit like that. Um, another one that just was rich that we needed to share with you guys. This is actually an excerpt. Uh, let's see. It was published in The Guardian in 2017, and it's an so expert. <laughs> it's an, or not expert. It's an excerpt from the book called The Case Against Sugar by Gary Tobes, who's like a science health journalist of sorts. Um, he's written a few books. Maybe we could do an episode on, on him one day. Um, but he talked about that sugar came of the tropics in the 16th century, so about 500 years ago, with tea, coffee, chocolate, rum, and tobacco. So essentially he said that it came, sugar came of the age when these other addictive substances, when these other drugs, quote-unquote, you know, chocolate's a drug for sure, right? That makes sense. Obviously. And obviously. because of that, because of the timing of everything, that they're all addictive. Like, what kind of logic is that? I'm sorry. Gary, do better. <laughs> um, you put chocolate, rum, and sugar in the same room. They're all the same thing. They're all just the worst thing ever. How How is this an argument? How is this... Right. How does that not go unchallenged? I know. It's it's really oh. alarming because I feel like people use their, you know, these are these are big sources, right? And these are people yeah. who have written other things in the health space. And so it makes me sad because sometimes I get the vibe that people are not challenged because maybe they're more established in their career or the space that they're in and and just because they are does not mean that you should be writing nonsensical bullshit like this on the internet. It's just messed up. It really is. And his argument includes tea and tobacco in the same lump of addictive substances. <laughs> I mean, that's Bonkers. just laughable. I know. It's insane. It's insane. I mean, honestly, there are headlines. I've just, I've had a blast actually looking through, preparing <laughs> for this episode. Um, headlines that include like, is cheese as addictive as cocaine? Are Oreos as addictive as cocaine? And it's like, I'm sorry. What is the <laughs> point of your article? Mm -hmm. Like, I get that we're all trying to get some traffic into our websites and maybe SEO is a thing there. But like, come on. Um, I, something I, I think it's timely for this episode is... I hate even bringing this up. I just don't want to, but I have to because it's, uh, I want people to feel empowered by information and I want them to question things, especially in the nutrition yeah. space. Um, I absolutely love Jonathan Van Ness. Absolutely Same. love him. Love queer. Abs 
Yes. Jonathan Van Ness, GVN, has a new show on Netflix called Getting Curious with JVN. Really? Lovely. Lovely uh, show. I need I to think watch there's, that. There's an, oh, there's an episode on... Well, there's actually... You just need to watch it all. It's it's just very, very good. Um, there's a lot of creativity. It's very visually appealing. Um, JVN asks a lot of interesting questions, and he brings really cool guests. But one thing that did happen that I was like, oh, no, is getting curious with JVN. There's an episode called Why Do I Love Snacks So Much? And let me just answer that for you simply because you're a normal person and snacks are awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that's not what happens. I believe he speaks to Dr. Avina, who's a neuroscientist, and her response was really sad to me. Uh, JVN essentially was asked to bring everything he consumes in one day. Um, I get that this is TV, so they're probably doing this for shock factor. Um, but JVN goes on to say that he has coffee and uh, with a little bit of milk and doesn't have anything to eat until noon or something like that, which she does say like, okay, well, food is, uh, coffee is not a food and, you, you know, we need to talk about that. Um, but he goes on to say that he has a salad and then he starts talking about the snacks that he consumes, which include yogurt covered pretzels, which sound delicious. Have you had yogurt covered pretzels? Of course, for sure. And so delicious. Okay, yeah. Um, which he offers some start, some pretzels to her, and she's like, no thanks, which I'm like, God, man, I would love to eat some <laughs> yogurt-covered pretzels with JVN. Anyway, he has pizza, Pop-Tarts, Gushers, and the heartbreak. She states, essentially, that he is addicted to sugar, and he says, what's happened is that you've developed a dependence to these foods. Stop. And then JVN says, no, those words, I've had to go to rehab before. These feel like such big words. Oh, my God. And I literally was like, I was like this, grabbing my head, like, no. Um, And then she states, well, she essentially goes on to explain how food can act like a drug. No. And she pulls up the same MRI no. pictures we've been I know Stop. we've been talking about. And she talks about the dopamine and she just tells JVN that essentially this is an addiction. And she goes on to say we need to put the blame not on the patient, but somewhere else, which is a very ambiguous statement. Like, oh, it's not your fault, but we should phantom person let's blame that person it, it, you know uh yeah and then the episode goes on to say that sugar is on everything and <sighs> you know for a moment when you were telling that story I was like this is great I'm so glad she was on there and then I I felt it go south very quickly um oh that's so disheartening I know and something also that I've, I, I kind of 
went through some social media accounts that talk about dispelling this myth of sugar is addictive as cocaine or as addictive as other things or we are all addicted to sugar. One of the things that I found is for dietitians who are doing this work, which shout out to everyone who's doing this work because it's an uphill battle, but I could see in the comments, I just decided to just kind of read through the comments, see what people were saying, uh, because it's so prevalent in the headlines, it would be kind of a shocker to see a dietitian say, you're not addicted to sugar, that's not what's going on here, um, because what's interesting about our position is we're not defending um, junk food or manufacturers who put things that are shitty for people to like the flavor and just ask for more. We're not here defending those people, but we're also not here telling people that they need to go on a sugar cleanse, which mm-hmm. is a really hard line to, to walk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but one thing that I was reading is that people who who would comment on these social media posts, they would say, you know, I'm actually somebody who dealt with addiction, who had to go to rehab, and this feels massively different. I mean, I, I get that, like, sugar is nice and, like, I do crave sugar, but, like, this is a relief to know that I'm not addicted to something else. Mm-hmm. And it, I just... It, it broke my heart to feel like we're comparing people who struggle with an addiction to cocaine or alcohol or any other substance, and we're telling them, oh, my God, you are also addicted to sugar. Um, we all need to go to a rehab to just cleanse our bodies from all the sugar. Uh, no. So what are we saying, Kelly? What is happening here with all the cravings? Why do you think that we're all believing that we're addicted to sugar? That's a really good question. And I feel like it, it requires us to go through what is addiction, right? Kat just made a great point about how people who do struggle with addiction issues to, you know, alcohol or other substances, how they feel when they read, you know, comments about I'm addicted to sugar, you know, how that makes them feel. And that's totally valid because when we look at the addic- the definition of addiction, when we look at the most recent version, so it's called the DSM or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Talk about a mouthful, um, but the most recent <laughs> version is DSM-5. And in there, they go through 11 criteria or symptoms for substance use disorders. So these symptoms range throughout a few different categories, um, impaired control, social problems, risky use, physical dependence, and then there are levels of severity. So depending on, you know, how many criteria a patient would meet. So this is things like, for example, uh, social problems. An example would be neglecting responsibilities and relationships, Um, giving up activities that you used to care about because of substance abuse, Um, risky use, an example, continued use despite known problems, um, or using in risky settings. So when you look at the actual definition, it doesn't make sense, right? (laughs) We we don't see those types of, I guess, symptoms as, as they call it. Like in sugar, that's not a thing, right? We are talking about addiction versus craving, right? We are all human. And I think 
that we respond to very palatable foods, right? So things that taste really good, things with sugar or with fat or with salt, um, or simply with energy, right? With carbohydrates, like those foods taste really good to us. And so it's going to activate the reward pathway in our brain, that dopamine pathway that we talked about, which is not the same as addiction. Right. I think like we talked about the headlines, um, something we haven't talked about is the pictures associated with the headlines. And often it's like a mysterious white powder that assume it, like we can assume it's cocaine. And then the other one, it's like a person holding all a bunch of sugar cubes to their mouth or to their face being like, you know, you can tell that they're desiring. And I'm sorry, I've never seen that. I've never seen somebody just like shoving In real white sugar <laughs> yeah. into their mouth, just like, you know, sneaking in the middle of the night where they're putting themselves at risk or it's causing some sort of social problem mm-hmm. where they're neglecting their responsibility or relationship. This is why it's so problematic to talk about addiction when it comes to food because we need food for survival. Right. So, and, 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 to your point, I think what is happening here, why why are we so uh, predisposed maybe to crave sugar? And I think it's, it's, it's what you just said. These are hyper-palatable foods. These are foods that taste delicious and are widely available because it's cheap. And we just, they're enticing. Mm-hmm. We crave them because sugar is in a lot of things and we are looking for energy, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for that kind of dopamine thing. Not in the addiction sense that we see with cocaine, but rather in the um, energy sort of need Mm -hmm. that our our body wants. And and I think to also to to, uh, add to that sort of combination, they taste delicious, but we also demonize them because... Too much sugar, we know it's not good for our system. And so there's this sort of behavior that we we tell people, it's bad for you to eat this. This is so bad. You're being bad. Don't eat this. And so restriction of these foods is, is super common, right? People are just like, I can't have that at all. We overly restrict these foods, and then what happens after a while is that we, when we do have them, we end up overeating because we've been restricting for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think that behavior of hyperpalatable foods and the demonizing of sugar creates this sort of cycle of over-restriction binging, over-restriction binging, um, and it's difficult for anyone to get out of that. And I understand why we call it an addiction, but it is problematic. It's not a tradition. And yes, do we all probably could use less sugar intake? Probably. But do we need to demonize things? Can Do we need to talk about it as a true addiction, make everybody feel bad? I don't think that's helping. I think um, our approach of intuitive eating, mindful eating, can create some space so that we can enjoy the foods that have sugar to a certain extent, and then also pay attention to what our body actually needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like people are treated, like simply because humans enjoy sugar, that that's not pathological. Like that's just a fact, right? It tastes good. 
and that activates the reward system. There's no pathology behind that. And yet people, as, as you're talking about, people are treated as if they're addicted to sugar and told yeah. by doctors, you need to cut out sugar or you're going to get diabetes. It's going to be terrible. And so they're treated like they're addicted to sugar. And when you're treated as if you are such, then you start to believe that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and then think about sugar is... You know, when we talk about glucose, it's part of carbs, it's part of what our brain prefers for energy. Um, it would be kind of the same as if we were to say, like, hey, you're really thirsty and you want some some water. And I'm like, oh, you're addicted to water. Like, <laughs> you want it all the time when you're thirsty, <laughs> when it's a hot day. And then you have a small glass and you want more. Like, how sick are you? <laughs> We're so addicted to water. It's like, it's nonsensical. Mm-hmm. It's nonsensical. Now, the fact that maybe at the time when you're thirsty, instead of a, a warm glass of water, you might want a cold, sugary something, it makes sense that your brain would want that. It would associate with more calories. It would associate with that sort of quenching of that thirst. We're not talking about the same things. We cannot mm-hmm. put cocaine next to sugar. It's just silly. Yeah. I hope we got that message across. That's, that was our goal. Really kind of (laughs) investigate the actual, you know, science that's out there and see, do these headlines have any merit? And no, they do not. And and no. Um, So anyway, if, if you enjoy this episode, we highly encourage you to rate and uh, let us know what you think of our podcast. We have a new episode coming out next week. We would love for you to tune in. And for everyone who's tuned in so far, we are so thankful and honored that you have spent this time with us. We love our listeners. We've gotten some new ones, so you are so welcome. If this is your first episode, I hope you enjoyed it. We love all our listeners, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye.